0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Performance at the US Men's National Team, Steve (music) Tastian. Thanks for tuning in to episode 262 of the Pacey Performance Podcast, so not many people have had the delight of speaking to me for three uh, on three separate episodes for the podcast. But Steve is definitely one of them, and there's a reason for that because I love speaking to Steve. We always go down different rabbit holes that have almost got nothing to do with performance and performance sport on the face of it, but then there's so much that links back to, to those that are working in professional and collegiate sport and amateur sport as well, just in general, and life in general, actually, with Steve. So in this episode, we had a list of things we wanted to cover, and then in the chat beforehand, we started chatting about um, project management, and I thought that was really applicable to those out there who are working in clubs that have got multiple staff, but also clubs that have got just one member of staff, That the practitioner practitioner's listening. And just going through different ways with Steve, how he manages different projects that he's got because he's based remotely with the US Men's National Team, how he keeps track of that, how he communicates with the staff that he's working with, who are also remote, and how he keeps things in line and his mind in line with how things are moving forwards, um, given his his remote setting. And I know people, a lot of people out there won't be remote, but I think the same still applies with managing certain projects, managing certain members of staff, etc., etc. So we start off with a little chat around that. Then we discuss um, general coaching philosophy, um, what he's doing with the men's national team, what work there. They're going through some of the challenges they've faced then we move on to something that we discussed with Steve in a previous episode with him, which was carbohydrate periodization. And his love of that as a, as a general topic and some of the success he's had at Columbus Crew and what he has, um, I think he had that Everton as well. We discussed that in the in the episode. Um, so that's, that's a really interesting topic. And then towards the end, looking at building performance teams, culture, etc. cetera. So great episode with Steve, which I'm sure are absolutely positive love this episode of the of performance podcast is sponsored by hawking dynamics the world's first wireless force plate testing system so the hawking dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab so you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from Imeasure U is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. So Imeasure U have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Steve Tastian. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So welcome to a part three with Steve Tastian. So welcome to the podcast, mate.
1: Uh, It's good to be back, Rob. Thanks, buddy.
0: Thank you for coming on. Thank you for uh, taking the time to have a little chat. So a couple of things have changed. Well, a lot's changed by the sounds of it since (laughs) last time we spoke. I don't know. I don't quite know how long it was ago since we spoke, but a new role as a head of performance for the U.S. men's national team, um, previously with Columbus Crew, the last two times I spoke with you. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of an update from your, your background pre-Columbus to, to what you're doing at the minute.
1: Yeah, I had um, we both times we spoke before, Rob. I was in my second stint with Columbus Crew Soccer Club, uh, this time as the high-performance director, and then previous to that, I was in England for five seasons as head of sports science with Everton football club. Uh, and then that was preceded by my first uh, time with Columbus in that particular role. I was more head of strength and conditioning and, uh, and re- and rehab coach. So it's, it's kind of come full circle. Now I've had um, time domestically within this country and then some time abroad. And uh, now it's a role that I, My patriotic side gets to take over, and uh, it's a great opportunity to uh, to be a you know to first have been a fan of U.S. soccer for so long as a kid, and then following it um, following it over the years uh, to get a chance to now work exclusively with the U.S. men's national team has been great.
0: Absolutely. So just to give the listeners a bit of an insight into what we're going to chat about, so we'll we'll start off with a little uh, discussion around differences between. Club football, international football, and the kind of challenges that you've had working remotely, and then coming together for camps, and then some stuff around carbohydrate periodization for team sports, and then uh, building performance teams, platforms, and a little bit of team culture stuff. But just before we do get into that, do you um, do you want to give us a little bit of an insight into what it's been like in that transition? And then I know there's been a lot of changes in what it seems on the outside. There's been quite a few changes in um, in US men's soccer with Darcy and Jordan coming in just want to give us a bit of an update on that and then what the performance team looks like and then we'll go into the uh the kind of differences between your club role and the national team role
1: sure sure yeah I mean it's it was it was always going to be a um an adjustment for me for sure you spend so much time in the day-to-day um you know scramble of of club football and you you get um you know, you kind of adapt to that particular tempo and that pace, but you also, uh, you gravitate towards the way in which you get things done. It's very quick. It moves at a high velocity community. You know, there's constant communication happening at a minute by minute basis. And uh, that pace uh, all of a sudden disappears. And you're now, you know, in this, uh, in this position where you have to achieve the same level of consistency and preparation and performance, but you do have to connect with people in a different way. I think I was ready for it though. You know, it was a point in my career where I felt like, um, you know, that my, my consistency and quality of what I was giving was directly related. I think to the fatigue that I think I was accumulating over time, just as you grind through, you know, the, The club football environment. So I I thought it was a really good time for me to kind of have this particular experience where even though there's still a lot of pressure and and need for being diligent in your preparation and how you communicate, uh, it did allow me to at least do it within my own environment, um, create my own strategies for how I was going to complete those things and give me a really kind of clear position to take on a new challenge, but also um, you know, get into a, a headspace where I felt like I was getting, you know, a bit healthier. I needed, it was a break that I think I needed and a different environment gave that to me. You know, and then just as, um, as the uh, post World Cup 2018, um, you know, procedures were in place with US soccer, you know, not qualifying for the World Cup and having to make changes um, very, very difficult changes and taking introspective looks at what we were doing. We started to, you know, I started to at least gain information about the, the amount of work that's being done behind the scenes to make positive change and create, a, you know, another legacy of consistent World Cup qualifications. And we just started to assess what that would look like. And our our head coach, Greg Berhalter, is a very, very detail-oriented Know high performance coach who wants a consistent elite high performance culture, and in thinking about how we were going to develop that particular uh, environment, it's obvious that the first thing you start doing, you start thinking about people, you start thinking about staff, and first first opportunity that we had because both Greg and I are familiar with Darcy uh, for different reasons. One, Greg, for his time in Germany as a player uh, that coincided with with Darcy's time at Bayern Munich and and with the German national team. But then also, you know, just my interactions with them in my time at Everton as an Exos coach, it gave me a chance to kind of meet Darcy, get to know him. And then obviously we know what he's done in his career. He's a fantastic, you know, resource for us. And the fact that he was available, willing, humble enough, uh, you know, to take on this particular role with us, you know, really gave insights to who he is as a person uh, and, but more importantly, you know, who he is as a practitioner. It's been great. It's been great to be able to work with him day to day. Uh, and and I, I've, I feel grateful that he's a part of the setup. And then, you know, we just, we needed to continue to build uh, in bringing people that were very, very technically skilled in certain areas. And data was a, was a big one for us. Um, and, and Jordan Jordan Webb just fit the mold. Uh, you know, he's technically, he's, he's an outstanding data scientist um, and really does have a, have a, have a knack and a skill for, for creating models that really work, but knowing how to start from the question that we want answered and then working backwards. He's, he's, he's great at it, but then he's also got a background as a performance coach, which allows him to be a very dynamic and agile practitioner for us. And uh, that's so far is the team that we've built on the, on the performance side. And then, um, you know, we're, we've been, we've adopted a great medical team that was already in place and we've made some changes on that side, hiring the first full-time head athletic trainer for the men's team and Ron Cheneau, who's just joined us here over the summer right around the gold cup time. And then we've had a consistent staff of physios that's, that's remained with us. So I think, you know, we've, we've really been able to develop, um, you know, a good team of skilled practitioners and that's what you want in a high performance model. You want really um, uh, diligent and highly skilled practitioners that bring a variety of skill sets to a group who are in place to solve a question. And that question is, you know, how do we get in each individual performing at the highest level? So we've, we've had a great opportunity here in the last six, seven months to, to put together, you know, a good staff that can accomplish the goals we have for the, for the men's team physically.
0: Cool. So one thing that hasn't come up much in the podcast, I suppose it has a couple of times, but not not too much in depth. And that's the evaluation that goes on kind of post season. And it'd be really interesting to get your views and your experience of that evaluation, which clearly was a big one post non qualification of, of of last the last World Cup in twenty eighteen. What mm-hmm. what kind of evaluation went on? What were the what were the areas that you were looking at and what did you find what are the areas that you could find to plug um, and and kind of get get some wins to to boost your chances of of qualifying for the next the, the coming tournaments and coming world cups?
1: Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of you know the the administrative and and organizational structure of it that was the responsibility of you know bringing in a new general manager and, and Ernie Stewart um, did it has done a great job of of really diving into a situation where. He was able to start that process that obviously started with him having to find a head coach. And and then since then, uh, you know, that's the, the organizational structure of, of U.S. soccer in and of itself is something that happens above me and, and has been moving at a really, really high velocity. And that's been great. But as far as, you know, my involvement in it, I've had a chance now to work for, you know, seven, eight months, nine months now with, with James, the high performance director for all of U.S. soccer. And the process has been uh, pretty consistent. One, you know, we wanted to build a performance staff, which I don't think there was ever like a, a really um, specific effort to to really, uh, you know, dig deep into what that pool would look like and how we would uh, evaluate the talent that we wanted to bring in. And that, that has obviously taken place and has been, uh, you know, awesome to watch as, as we bring in guys like Darcy and we bring in guys like Jordan and Ron. Now the process I think after that was we needed to recreate a more consistent relationship with clubs. I thought, you know, the, the, the reality of, of our environment is that a large portion of the physical development that's taking place, a majority of the physical development that's taking place is not with us. So how do we maximize our relationships with MLS clubs, with European clubs for European based players and create a transparent collaborative relationship where the sharing of information is taking place constantly. Uh, That was something we haven't solved it yet. We know it's a high priority and we're chipping away at it month by month. And we've learned a lot with each camp. We learn about how we can improve the way we communicate with clubs We've also learned that it's our responsibility to make it as easy as possible for the clubs. I think that's something that gets missed. And being having been on both sides of that equation, I was pretty adamant that we needed to go above and beyond to really answer that particular question. Because – I wanted to make sure that once we settled on something and we thought "Mm, that's pretty good and that's going to make things pretty easy for the clubs. I wanted to go, okay, let's go one step further than that because I've been on the other side and it is difficult, especially when you're in an environment where let's say your club is not only has, you know, international players for the U S but has international players for several other countries, you're being asked to do these things for multiple players and it is time consuming and we wanted to really, and we're still doing, a, um, you know, a consistent deep dive on how we can create a much more consistent, streamlined way of communicating information. And, and that was, that's a big part of preparing this process. And then the last one for me is we really do need to take a look, not just at this upcoming World Cup, but then, uh, you know, the, a World Cup that's going to be hosted here in the United States and say, we've you know, we've got this seven-year time frame where we really need to maximize the efforts in developing developing the you know the physical process for kids that might be only 19 20 years old right now so how are we communicating identifying physical talent and then communicating what's to be expected of these players when they enter our environment what physically they need to be able to tolerate what level do they need to be able to perform at and how can we start looking at younger ages and identifying the process in, in collaborate, collaborating with clubs in their physical development as we move towards 2026. So it is, it is pretty um, it's listen, it's early, it's, it's in its infancy, but you know, these are some of the bigger questions that came out of, you know, failing to to qualify for a world cup and overall infrastructure is going to be a big part of it. Some of it I'm a part of other things are, way above my pay grade but at the end of the day it's it's a it's a process that is underway and uh, you know I'm just thankful looking at the people that are in charge of that process that we're in, we're in good hands it's it's a, it's a it's something right now where people are working very very hard to make sure that we're in a sustainable position to continue to to be a part of the, the biggest spectacle in, in world football
0: Exciting times sounds sounds brilliant. So one thing, (coughs) excuse me, one thing I want to touch on is something we spoke about beforehand, and I think it'll be, I'll 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 tell you I'll tell people what it was that we chatted about, and I don't want to lose people on that because I think it's really applicable to people in sports science, and conditioning, performance departments as they Mm -hmm. continue to grow. And me and Steve had, had chatted a little bit about the being remote and having. Clear tasks on what you have to do and what you know, checklists and things like that, and and portioning time so you're you're not eating into either family time or family time is not eating into work time. It's very it's very structured, and I think this really feeds into people in performance departments who have got maybe a research arm and a um, obviously people doing their different jobs in their different groups of groups and teams and actually streamline this and keeping things very structured and. And like you say, when you're not able to go face to speak face to face with someone over your left shoulder and your right shoulder, <laughs> you have to look for other ways. And I think how you described how you work will be really interesting for people to to, to hear, um, even though they might not be remote because there's not many practitioners that like yourself are remote. So I just want to explain to us that some of the tools that you use and some of the maybe challenges that you went through in the early stages of been remote and having to find other ways to communicate?
1: Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, man, I was, it was really difficult. I, I had a very, very hard time organizing my day. And, and there was, I think there was a, a good understanding of what needed to be done just because this role, you, the difference between the two environments is everything is, is so geared towards preparation. You're just planning, 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 planning. Constantly, in the there is a very clear list of things that you need to do and complete uh, before you arrive to the next international window. But it's all just kind of out there in the universe, and it's uh, sometimes you're grabbing for one and you forget about the other, and then as you're kind of working through one particular responsibility, you, you all of a sudden realize you haven't started another and. And then um, you know you're trying to think of man, who do I need to tie into this to get this done quickly? Because it, it's, it takes collaborative efforts to do all this stuff. And then so you just you you quickly realize that you need help in organizing what the individual projects are, what the tasks that are, are related to those projects, um, who is assigned to those particular tasks, when the deadlines need to be, organizing it in a way to where you can very clearly and 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 reproducibly, you know, end up moving from one camp to the next in a very organized way. And so, using these project management tools has been a big one for me. And when I'm when we're not in camp, I'm very heavily working in Asana, and that particular um, that particular tool has been probably my primary project management tool up to this point. You know, the, I, I realized you know we can categorize the national team calendar. In a couple of different ways. One, we know we always have a camp in January that mostly includes MLS players and is in general about four weeks long. And then we've got the March international window, which is a 10 day camp, the September, October and November international windows, which are all 10 day camps. Well, that those particular 10 day camps are you can kind of categorize them in a way uh, and you can categorize them together because they're very similar needs You have very similar situations that take place um, as you prepare for those particular types of windows. And then the last one is your summer tournaments. And then summer tournaments obviously have some consistencies. I think they, they change based on, uh, you know, location, but, and they also change based on region, but in general, you know, you can kind of wrap your head around what's needed for these three categories, these, these January windows, these, 10-day international windows, and then your summer tournament. So that's that was my starting point. And then I could use tools like Asana to say, okay, let's set up a template for our for our 10-day camps. What are the consistent things that we need to make sure we have in place, ready to go from a planning standpoint, from a communication standpoint, from a shipping standpoint, all kinds of things that, you know, you never had to think about in club football, really. And, and those that tool has helped me do that. You establish what all those tasks are, you assign those tasks to specific people. And then you think about, you know, if I was to work backwards from the date we report to camp, I can start setting really consistent deadlines for every single one of those tasks and they're gonna be repeated. So I know that when it comes to the international window, I know that six days, seven days before we report to camp, there's a certain communication that I send out to clubs as we start the process of sharing data. That's going to be consistent in every single one of those 10-day camps. I also know there's a certain point where the supplements and things I need to order need to be in Chicago at Soccer House at a certain point. I know what that point is, which means I can set that deadline in a very consistent way. And, and we can, I can plan the entire year of when those things need to be done for each individual international window. And then, you, you know, you just start to drill backwards using these tools in that way. Because when I didn't have that tool, you know, it was just a challenge of me, you know, sitting down at my computer at, you know, whether it was 5 a.m. because I woke up early or whether it was, you know, 8, 8 a.m. because, you know, I didn't get started until later in the day, whatever it might be. As soon as you sit down, you do start off by just staring at your computer screen <laughs> Yeah, you, I tried using dry erase boards at first, you know, all the walls in my office at home are covered in dry erase board. And, you know, you start writing these things up. But when I write something on the board, you know, I still have to then sit down on my computer and tie the people into what's on my dry erase board. Well, I needed to take everything on that board and and digitize it so that I could start sharing more consistently. And Asana is a great tool and that's helped me a lot. And then in camp we use, um, you know, um, teamworks and that that's been great as a communication tool getting schedules consistently communicated to players everybody knows exactly what's required of them from one minute to the next that's been a great tool for us to utilize so there's there are there are these project management tools out there uh, that are very very consistent that really allow you to to communicate remotely or whether you guys are together in a way that puts everybody on the same page and that's helped quite a bit and that's probably one of the bigger tools. And then just utilizing something like Box, which is something we use on a consistent basis, or it's, it's just another file sharing tool. Uh, you know, Greg and I, as we're creating training plans for any of these international windows, I start very, very early putting down the dates, the matches, and then working backwards for training sessions and what intensity should probably roughly look at look like. And then I can share that, send them a quick note as he evaluates it, he can send notes back to me and then we can communicate that way. And that's how we slowly evolve the training plans for each particular camp. And then as we're in camp, you know, obviously you you have the opportunity to now take advantage of that, you know, minute by minute ability to communicate and, and, and be face to face. But outside of that, it took me a while, man. It probably <laughs> it took me probably until Gold Cup. In uh, in May, to really have kind of a clear process in place in my head of how I was how I was going to organize
0: all these things remotely, but it was a big challenge. So we had a little chat around the project management stuff, and if anyone um, if anyone's been helped, it's definitely been me for, for the stuff that I'm going through at the minute with being remote and managing my time and creating checklists and stuff. But when you're actually on camp from a physical point of view, how do you how do you know whether you've been successful? What are your aims? And that's going to obviously depend on how many days you've got what kind of fixtures you've got but at the end of that camp what it, what what does success look like for you as a performance department
1: yeah that's a great question um you know i think it's definitely tied into to bigger picture stuff uh during this particular period and where we are you know we are going we're up we are about to start you know a competitive period where we're starting the nations league here but for the most part, this year, it's really been about a new staff, a new style, and acclimating a whole new group of players to, to what we're going to be about as, as, a, as a team, as a nation. So I, you know, initially, our, our goal is to look at a successful camp as did we make progress, not just physically, but tactically. And, and you, you evaluate that by you know, the filters that you've put in place that defined who you are as a team and defined your culture. And for us, the overarching mission is to change the way in which the world views American soccer. So now you have a completely different way of evaluating whether your camp was successful. A big part of that is going to be, we know what our identity is. Did we get closer to seeing that particular identity on the field? And did we consistently integrate new players and, expose them to what that identity is? Did we consistently take steps from day one to day 10, if you're dealing with a 10-day camp, day 11, um, and take steps towards progress and making these, these this mission, this vision a reality? And physically, where we fit into that whole process, I think is as you identify new players who may be at a club for a while, may have transitioned to a new club. You're trying to evaluate where they are physically. Are we, are they in a position where they can play 90 minutes at a really, really high level? You know, we have to evaluate that. And we have to make, you know, a clear, we have to have a clear idea of where they are. And then we have to create a plan. Is it going to involve, you know, heavy communication with the club? Is the club already on top of it, already aware of it, already has a plan? you know, are we in a position where we've got a good relationship with that particular club, whereas a federation, we won't be considered, um, maybe a little bit too invasive by, by communicating, uh, you know, the need for, for a certain progression, you know, some sensitivities in that area, but I think your overarching evaluative tool is going to be one, what we're trying to accomplish, uh, as a, as a soccer nation and where we are in that process. And right now, uh, leading up to this point, you know, we haven't really been in a heavily competitive period. So it's more about that vision. Now, as we approach these competitive um, camps where, where there is something to be gained, where we are being evaluated by our, by our results more intensely, then now, the, now what we're trying to do physically is, one, break the camps up into phases. So our first responsibility is to understand the state of the player when they arrive, and we want, to, we want to integrate them into full training as soon as it is safe. And a big part of that comes with the communication and, and data evaluation and analysis that takes place in those first 48 hours once, once, you know, competitive matches on the weekend are finished and players are traveling to us. We, we've got to evaluate data quickly. And a great example of how difficult that is, is, you know, this next 10-day camp, just at a coincidence, by chance... You know, it's the final weekend in the MLS season and every team is playing on Sunday. So you're usually accustomed to a majority of your players arriving in camp Sunday. Now all of a sudden we got to switch our mindset. There's, on top of it, it's unbelievable coincidentally how many of our European-based players are playing on Sunday as well. (laughs) So you end up going, all right, whatever plan we had beforehand, we've got to change it because a majority of our players are arriving Monday and we've got a competitive match Friday. So your first you you have no choice but to first concentrate on how we can in, in, integrate everybody into full training safely as quickly as possible then once you get everybody into full training you have very limited time on the field to prepare them for the first competitive match so i think a big part of the preparations in camp has been you know some of the things that greg has implemented with his particular performance analysis team and how we're communicating you know, clips from the opponent while they're still with their clubs. Like they have to be watching film before they arrive or else it's going to be very, very difficult. And so for tactically, the players have every opportunity to at least have seen the opponent and they should have an idea in their head through repeated communication and, and very, very consistent messaging to understand what their role is going to be in that process. For, for us physically, you know, we don't necessarily have the luxury of doing that because we don't know how many minutes they're going to play. On that final game until it happens. So then we have to adjust on the fly. But we'll, we've we got, you know, scenarios in place. If this guy plays 90 minutes, we're going to do this. If they don't play 90 minutes, we're going to do this. And then as soon as we know the numbers, we execute the plan that fits. And then and we get everybody on the same page as quickly as possible. And then now you're just evaluating, you know, how how well you, you managed the week. And for me, that comes down to freshness. Were they fresh? when we play like this particular camp coming up, the first games on a Friday, were we fresh on Friday? And that comes down to the subjective information that the players are giving us. And it comes down to the evaluation of the daily screens that we, that we take objectively for the players as well. And then you just keep evaluating, you keep evaluating and keep adapting. And now you move into the second phase of that 10 day camp. And now you got between from Saturday to Monday, those are the days you have to prepare them for the match on Tuesday. And then that, to me is you can never script that because it's so dependent on how the game goes. And then you just have a consistent set of scenarios and you, you start moving towards the one that you think is going to fit best based on, you know, how you how the game went on Friday, you know, St. Louis in this last camp was a great example. <clears throat> we, you know, we, we started moving into, into that particular period, that second phase of this last camp. And we realized, we got to change some strategies here. The heat was just brutal and it was unexpected. There was a big change in the weather forecast and the heat humidity was 97 degrees plus, you know, 70, 75% humidity. And the adjustment was a good learning process. I don't think that I had them as fresh as they should have been on that Tuesday game. And that's an adjustment that you have to make. You've got to realize that, you know, there are some outside circumstances that have to be taken into consideration and, and I, I could have made a better adjustment I think going into the, the game against Uruguay and st. Louis but those are all challenges that take place while you're in camp and the decisions have to be made so quickly um, that you know it, it always allows you to evaluate and adapt and think about how you're gonna do things better the next time you're in camp but then it's completely different for a January camp you know January camp when we get them in the responsibility is on us to get them physically up to speed. It's very much like a preseason in that from a physical standpoint, most of that camp is mostly MLS players and those MLS players, depending on how far they went in the playoffs could have been off for two months, could have been off for four weeks. So you now have to create a completely different plan that looks nothing like a 10 day international window. So all these things need to be taken into consideration. And then you just, you know, the planning and preparation in between camps for me you know, really does focus on having several scenarios ready to go. And once you see the actual match participation from that last game before the report, you then have to evaluate which scenario you're going to use and execute it as quickly as you can. So it is it is a much different type of training process, but the goals are about get them up to speed and recovered and fully into training as soon as possible. You know, really have a plan in place that gives you freshness Leading into that first game on Friday, and then in between Friday and Tuesday, assess the the variables that are in place, and again, um, be agile enough to create the right plan to be fresh again on Tuesday. I think you know that that's really your ten day window philosophy for me.
0: Them temperatures, Steve. As a ginger haired, pale white <laughs> in Northern Englishman, I'm just sweating. I'm just I'm getting sunburned just thinking about it. Hell. It was, um, it was oppressive,
1: oppressive heat, man. It was incredible. It was
0: incredible. Oh, yeah. brutal, brutal. <laughs> so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Steve. Hope you enjoyed enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around carbohydrate periodization. And then we finish off the chat discussing uh, building performance teams, platforms, and team culture. So assessing culture, um, evaluating staff, how we... Um, how we grade staff and how Steve assesses their their year or their two years or whatever that that length of time may be and how he feeds that information back to them. So really interesting part two coming up with Steve. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAF model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter, at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance Podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is the only non-invasive, at rest, technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. OmegaWave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by a medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. This measurement only takes 4 minutes to perform and results are visualised in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So If you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. One thing that I'd like to chat about, and I think this we, we touched we touched on this last time we spoke. Actually, it was it's around carbohydrate periodization, mm-hmm. and I think we could tie this in nicely with some of the stuff that you've just spoke about there and the recovery necessity for recovery during these camps because it's so intense in such a short space of time, training turnarounds, game turnarounds. So where did where did your interest in nutrition come from, and and why specifically this pro this kind of area that you focused and had a real interest in
1: yeah it started actually all the way back um probably 2011 ish I was still at Everton at the time and I I just had I had a problem with what I was seeing in front of me from really high level international footballers you know the these guys are covering 40 to 50 kilometers per week. And I couldn't wrap my head around how we were still dealing with players that, you know, needed to lose three kilos, you know, three to four kilos. These guys, you know, that are above where they should be an ideal weight. I mean, if you're covering 40 to 50 kilometers a week, I'm I'm struggling to understand how you're not in the right state of lean muscle mass and how that how that particular conditioning scenario isn't taking care of itself. And so I overall I started to evaluate what really takes place when we ingest certain macronutrients. Is there something we're missing? And I just kept gravitating towards the, you know, this this carbohydrate-based model that we had in place. Anytime I tried to evaluate it from a non-biased perspective, it kept drawing me back to, to this, you know, carbohydrate model. And what we know about the molecule is, you know, that it's three quarters water, just in its basic chemical formation is, uh, you know, the CH2O basic carbohydrate molecule. It's very water-based. We know that it's a big molecule. There's some turbulence that it causes just as it's circulating through the system. We also know that it's, you know, it has a direct effect on insulin levels within the body. These are, these are facts. These are the things we know, you know, we, we know systemically it causes inflammation and we have this very clear understanding of why it gives us benefits at times when it's ingested, but I don't think I could fully wrap my head around the need for it to be so heavily ingested on a daily basis based on what we know about, you know, the natural physical periodization of, of soccer and in, in, in training rhythms. Uh, that was the starting point for me. And then, you know, we, we know the sport is so aerobically robust and the periods of high intensity work are so short, and we know there's a role for creatine phosphate, a significant role for creatine phosphate. But I'm just thinking about why are we depending on carbohydrates to supply the aerobic need for the sport when fat is such a better aerobic source? And it wasn't that I didn't feel there was a need for carbohydrates. I still know there's a need for carbohydrates. And that's why, it's, that's why I, I, we call it a carbohydrate periodization model and why i try to correct people when they consistently label me as a ketogenic advocate for for soccer it, that's not where i'm at and that's not what i'm trying to drive here i think there's ketogenic strategies that work into our model but this is not a a, a ketogenic nutritional strategy and the the question was you know is do we do we implement periods of of carbohydrate restriction and then be really premeditated in the volume of carbohydrates we introduce and the timing of the carbohydrates we introduce. And I was able to take a small group of guys when I was at Everton and I was allowed to experiment with that small group of guys. And the results we got from a group of, of players that had consistently been labeled as, you know, um, poor fitness um specimens. You know, that they were there there are guys that got labeled as that group that would never ever be able to be 90 minutes fit. You know, that they're just genetically this, genetically that, type two fibers this, whatever it was, there was they were consistently labeled. I even let the under 21s coach select who was going to be a part of it. That way it was kind of clear that it wasn't biased by me. I wasn't selecting guys that I thought would be successful regardless. And we went through the process of utilizing a very um you know, somewhat, it, the model was based on what we had in research, but there was nothing really to direct us in this, in this sense. So I, I looked at that period between Sunday and Thursday as a period that we would um, restrict carbohydrates and then reintroduce carbohydrates as we approached Friday and Saturday, you know, match day minus one and match day. And in the, the results we got in eight weeks was, was amazing. And that was the point at which I said, all right, as a high performance director, you know, the, as soon as I ever get a chance to direct my own program, this is going to be a part of it for sure. And then the, the period we had in Columbus um, was, was really the testing ground and the proving ground. You know, we, we were able to modify the model as we saw what would work and what wouldn't work. At first, we started introducing carbohydrates as early as match day minus two on a very specific um, schedule. And what we realized was we didn't need to introduce it that early. Um, you know. So we, we continued to restrict through match day minus two and, and only started implementing carbohydrate loading match day minus one and then into the match day. But we were implementing the, the volume at a much lower level. We realized we only needed about 200 grams each day. And I have players that throughout our time consistently wanted to ingest less and less match day minus one and match day. Um and I and I had a hard time with it. I just said, listen, you're in a you're in a space where I can't direct you. You know, this is totally unprecedented. And for me, I feel like you should try to stay around those two hundred grams and, and there was a player that just said, Listen, you're just gonna have to trust me. I feel better with less. So it started it started the process of me questioning everything that we knew. This whole this whole, you know, idea that we can't produce power on a low low carbohydrate strategy or on a periodization model is is false. Yeah, in Regardless of what the research says currently, which you know we can question quite heavily based on the motives of the research and based on the, the funding of the research, but without getting into that categorically, I think what I would say is we're, we're proof that that none of the myths exist. You know, we led the league for four years straight. Total distance covered over ninety minutes, high speed running over ninety minutes, and sprint distance over ninety minutes for four years straight and so you can't you can't say we couldn't sprint you can't say you know that we we would run out of gas because we wouldn't we played atlanta in the playoffs in 2017 that went to it went to extra time we outran atlanta in extra time and we won in penalties we had to turn around 4 days later and play new york city football club who had a rest period we played midweek they didn't we outran them in that 90-minute game at home and beat them 4-1. The following year, again, we have to play the midweek playoff game against D.C. It went to extra time. We outran them in the extra time periods, and we won on penalties again. In that particular case, we had a 48-hour turnaround to play Red Bull at home. They did not play midweek. We did. We outran them over 90 minutes, and we won the game, one nothing. So uh, the – my my reason for bringing this up is that the 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 stories that were told about what you can and cannot do on these models is is not true and we're a consistent we're consistent proof that that's not true now within the national team setup it's much much different i don't ever really have these guys long enough to get them fat adapted and the only period that I've that we've worked in it as an experiment was this last January camp. And, and we had some players that really did feel the benefits over what they had been doing consistently beforehand, but we didn't make it mandatory because we knew that players were coming from so many different philosophies and then they had to return to their clubs. And it wasn't fair to the clubs for us to introduce something that they weren't necessarily set up to do or that they didn't believe in philosophically. and. And I had some really good conversations with some people after that January camp. And it did make me realize that, you know, I could have communicated the process of how I did that in January camp much better to be much more transparent with the clubs, because, you know, it, I see their side of it. It's definitely something where now players returning to the club and, you know, we have to be, we have to be sensitive to the fact that that invasively is interfering with, you know, the, the, how they, how they actually operate from a day-to-day basis. But it, you know, it's did it expose, it did expose us to, you know the consistency in, in what we can create when we really reevaluate our strategies in this area, and uh, you know I'm, I'm, it's easy for me to obviously be fully convinced because I was we were entrenched in it for five years um, and consistently had really fantastic results from it. But that's kind of where it started. That's where it ended. That's where we're at now. We're in a place where you know voluntarily, if players want to partake in this model and they need guidance in it, uh, you know, we've, we've obviously introduced it and uh, and we'll support the clubs and we'll support the player if it's a collaborative effort. And then in other areas, you know, we're just sensitive to the fact that this is not a strategy people are used to and we have to provide a wide array of food in our camps to make sure that each player coming from their particular belief system, it feels like they're being prepared properly from a nutritional standpoint.
0: Very interesting. So I'd love to dive into what that looks like from the Sunday to Thursday so played on the Saturday. Mm-hmm. What does what does that cycling of the carbs look like yeah, on Sunday to you know. so Thursday? How much yeah, yeah, when? Yeah, all these yeah. kind of stuff. The
1: conventional philosophy is that you need yeah, that you need carbohydrates immediately. Um, <laughs> I'm totally against that. <laughs> okay. In the end, your body is going through an incredible amount of systemic inflammation already from the ninety minutes. it's it's in a state of, it's in an inflammatory state already, a detrimental inflammatory state. But inherently what we were trying to do with carbohydrate ingestion after games is create the anabolic state necessary to start rebuilding muscle tissue. Well, that requires an insulin spike. And so, okay, well, let's use carbohydrates and sugars and let's get an insulin spike. The problem is, is you don't need carbohydrates or sugar to get an insulin spike. You can do it through leucine, isoleucine, and and the, the right amount of, of amino acids in your recovery strategies. So instead, we said, let's let's go with common sense here and let's not exacerbate the inflammatory state by cramming another 80 grams of carbohydrates into their body. Let's look at, you know, leafy, fibrous green strategies. To decrease inflammation, use amino acids to create that anabolic state, and then just have a very raw, um, you know, balanced meal with the right amount of protein and limit carbohydrate ingestion. And and in that particular, you know, if you want to talk numbers, you know, I would be in a situation where that particular meal, I wouldn't see it, I wouldn't want it to go over 30, 40 grams of carbohydrates in that meal post-match the following day match day plus 1 our recommendations are to be between 60 and 80 grams of carbohydrates the whole day and then we stay consistent with that match day plus 2 which for those players is normally another active recovery again we stay around 60 to 80 grams depending on the player and then you get to match day you know now match day minus 4 which is usually a high intensity training day now depending on what the physical emphasis is for that particular day if it's extensive and aerobic, and aerobic in nature, I want them to train glycogen depleted, and once you're fat adapted, it's no problem, because inherently, if it's an extensive session, then you want a robust aerobic fuel, and because they're already fat adapted, and because there is there is literally six to seven times more units of energy available in the form of fat at any given time in the body than there is in carbohydrates so aerobically you know they we perform really well on match day minus four in really difficult training sessions our hardest training sessions of the week and because you're training glycogen depleted you continue to drive the body's ability to utilize fat and mobilize fat as a fuel source so that continues the process and then usually match day minus three for us was a day off. Again, we stay 60, 80 grams. Match day minus two is a very is a lighter training session, tactical in nature. We still stay 60, 80 grams. And then we start match day minus one, depending on the player, anywhere between 120 and 200 grams of carbohydrates. And then Saturday, same thing. Saturday, I'm a little bit more liberal now. You know, if the, if the players want to be around 100 grams, if they want to be around 300 grams, I'm not as concerned. That, you know, what we've seen is that, Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't bounce them out of, of fat adaptation, uh, if they choose to use a higher carbohydrate strategy on the day of the match. But what I found is the players don't want it. You know, the players want to stay somewhere around 160 to 200 because they feel lighter, their guts happier. They're, they, they digest their food in a much healthier way. And they feel like they're more ready to play and they don't and they feel like they they've got the fuel they need but they're not as heavy from from you know it's hard to get 400 grams of carbohydrates in your body before before a match it's difficult but for the most part that's our strategy and it worked incredibly well i you know one of the stats that i love is from 2014 which was the year before i came to the club to 2016 which is the last time that i took the statistics for this Our RPE scores on match day plus two, so usually the first day the players arrived in for the training week, had lowered from a 6 out of 10 to a 4.4 out of 10. So they're coming in on Monday after a Saturday match, and they're feeling less sore. They're feeling more ready and more recovered. Now, you can't just say that was because of, of diet you know, and, and I obviously know that because there's all kinds of different variables. Maybe they were, maybe they were taking on more consistent recovery strategies on their days off. Maybe they're a very professional group, so on and so forth, but we're dealing with the same group of players. And over a period of two years, we just consistently saw the RPEs on that Monday drop. So th- that was kind of cool. And then obviously just the physical numbers from 14 till the, to the year we left 2018 are the distances we covered in games just continued to go up and up and up. So I, I think. You know, we've, we've had these discussions at length and, and it's it's not, you know, I, I wish it was as easy as me presenting the data and then everybody would say, hey, maybe there's something to this. And I obviously know that that's not particularly going to be the case, but, you know, it can't be argued that there's something here and something that needs to be looked at or just the fact that it highlights that we need to reevaluate what we're doing when it comes to, to our, our, our diet programming, our nutritional strategies in team sports.
0: So that for, for those guys that are wanting to or have been identified to either gain weight or lose weight, does that then change your philosophy? Not philosophy, but change how you attack this situation with regards to the carbs or not? Yeah, totally. Uh, you know,
1: it, it also some of it comes down to the fact that if you if you if you at the beginning uh, starting this strategy, if you've never been on the strategy before. You're going to lose weight in the beginning. Everybody does. Um, it takes an adjustment period to understand that the, you're going to lose weight at first, and then your body will start to adapt. Um, it'll it'll make up for a lot of this and lean muscle mass. There, it's clear in the research that low carbohydrate strategies, for some reason, elicits this response in 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 enzymes that that lead to protein synthesis. So you do end up actually gaining muscle mass mostly in the lower body through it. And then you do start to equalize in weight. You start to come back up, but for the most part, you will plateau at a weight that will be lighter and leaner than the weight you were at when you were, when you were on a carbohydrate based diet. That's something just normal to be aware of that takes place. You know, it's people have been using low carbohydrate strategies to lose weight for ages. We just haven't been using it for performance. And what happens more often than not when people want to lose weight was what they do is they restrict carbohydrates, but they don't add the most important piece, which is you have to increase your dietary fat ingestion. And that's why more, more often than not, people can't sustain a low carbohydrate diet because if you don't increase dietary fat and all you do is restrict carbohydrates, you're just going to be hungry. You're going to be hungry all the time because now all you're eating is protein and vegetables. And that's, Very difficult to maintain that diet because you're going to be hungry all the time. You will lose weight, but it's not a performance diet. What people have a hard time hearing is that you have to increase dietary fat to about 60% of your total caloric intake. And the first thing people say is, yeah, but I can't do that because I'm going to have high cholesterol and that's dangerous. And now you just stumble on another myth. I mean, it's been clearly shown in the research that cholesterol has zero correlation to cardiovascular disease. And now you're starting to dive into the difficulties and the intricate complexities of of trying to correct what I think is a flawed nutritional strategy. Because there's a fear factor that's been driven into us, mainly by the food industry, that now makes it very difficult to make really good decisions for the player. I mean, in our five years, not only did we do complete blood work, but we did NMR, which is the most in-depth lipid panel you can possibly do and we showed that we improved all of our players' cholesterol panels. We didn't make them worse. You're creating you're creating a person that can utilize cholesterol and fat. So there is going to be a change in the the plasma availability or the plasma presence of cholesterol within the blood. And overall we've seen the exact opposite. You know, just anecdotally I reversed my dad's cholesterol problem with a low carbohydrate high fat strategy. I didn't make it worse. So inherently, you know, there there are some <laughs> significant uh, obstacles to overcome that are that are based in groupthink, and groupthink is very very difficult to overcome. Uh, but it's it's at work, it's alive and at work within within the food industry for sure.
0: So how how have you been with actually converting players to to kind of believing that this is the way forward for them in their in their very short careers. I know everyone fears everyone fears change, mm-hmm. probably footballers more than most. Yeah. totally. because um, this totally. is what they've you know grown up and they've got to the position where they're at in a potential national team where you are mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So the question I'm guessing is why why change now? I feel I feel all right. Totally so how true. how hard's that been?
1: I, I think listen, it, it's also not it's also not something that I'm targeting in this particular role because okay. again, yep. it, you can't. You can't do it. One, the camps are so short that by the time they hit carbohydrate withdrawal, we're on a match day. It'd be detrimental. Like I can't do it. And carbohydrate withdrawal is very difficult to go through. It depends on how sugar addicted you are. But I've seen guys that go through what something that looks like the most severe flu you've ever seen. And it's it is it's a real thing that you can see happening. And players are lethargic on the field; they can't run, they feel like crap. I've seen it in camps, in 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 pre because you know we obviously have more time. We can let them go through it. The whole entire coaching staff's aware of it. We're not going to evaluate players negatively because of how they're training while they're in withdrawal. Those are different scenarios. You know, we were able to do it in January because we had time as well. But overall, you know, it can't be a part of my agenda to try to to try to con you know, if I was going to use a very strong word, the word would be convert. I don't think that's really the right word for it. But in the end, it would be very difficult unless the player voluntarily comes to me and says, listen, I understand what's happening and I want to try it. So the only thing that, that really I'm responsible for is communicating what it is, trying to educate that there's options, but I can't be the one to advocate whether the player needs to change or not. And if they choose that they want to, I have to, I have to communicate with their club. I have to, out of my responsibility. I I can't, I can, I can try to represent the player and present the, the, the data for why they they'll, they'll benefit from it, but the club has to support it or else it'll never survive. And, and in the end, we're talking about a very intimate process. You know, I consider the, I consider nutrition and um, and getting involved in that particular part of the player's life to be very sensitive and invasive. You know, you're talking about, you know, the the process of, of choosing what food they're going to put in their mouth that will eventually go in their body. And that's a very private, that's a very personal thing. And I think you have to be sensitive to it. You have to value it highly. Um, and then, and then obviously make sure that you're, you're giving it the sensitivity that it deserves because that's a very, very um, intimate process. And uh, in this environment, it involves a lot of moving parts, uh, and that definitely does include the club. So I think as we move forward in this particular arena with these players, uh, there's going to be a high level of sensitivity to it. And as players, there's there's definitely been players, even in 10-day camps, there's been players that have come to me and said, I don't care, I want to try it. And I've had to go to a head coach and say, listen, he's adamant. He wants to try it. And the the coach has to say, okay, I'm fine with it. Because if he says, no, I'm not okay with it. I'm worried about the potential for them to perform poorly, that we can't do it. You know, and those are some of the sensitivities that we have to face in this environment where a majority of the camps that we actually have are, you know, 11 day camps, 10, 11 day camps, and it makes it very difficult. But we have had players um, you know we've got a player right now who is a type 1 diabetic that um, uh, you know the changes that have taken place in this guy um, has made it super rewarding in, in, within this isolated scenario um, and um, and it's it's something that you know I, I've I've really been pleased with that the change made a big difference not only in their in their performance on the field but in, in the, the wellness of the player. Um, diabetes is a tough, tough disease to deal with. And it's volatile and it's it causes anxiety. And, uh, you know, I'm very pleased with the positive results that he's had. So there's some big, big victories within this that have taken place. But it's, it's happening now. It's, it's, it's obvious that it has to happen with a great level of sensitivity.
0: Superb. Well, I know we're coming up to an hour, and I promised I wouldn't keep you much longer than that. There's a few things. There's a few more things that I'd like to chat to you about, but sure. that just leaves it open for a another another episode further down the line. <laughs> <laughs> Again, number four. Any yeah, excuse it's to, uh, to turn out
1: into like a Rocky movie. We're gonna have. It's gonna be Rocky right. Seven here in a little bit
0: exactly exactly and there's absolutely no problem with that either so i'm just going to say if anyone wants to catch up with you and just have a little chat about your role at us soccer anything to chat about the the carbohydrate periodization um stuff that we've chatted about as well what's the best place for them to contact you
1: uh uh, social media is probably the easiest you know initially just reach out to at steve tastian on twitter that's a great one just message me there or uh, whatever it might be that that's probably the quickest way. Um, and yeah, I've, I've tried over the course of my career to be pretty open and transparent about communicating about these things. So that would probably be the quickest way. Just, you know, find me as quickly as you can on there. And, um, LinkedIn is another, another way to find me. Uh, and, and I'm more than, more than happy to, to kind of consult or, or just, you know, talk shop in this area. I love it.
0: Amazing. Thank you very much. Really appreciate coming on again, Steve. And thank you again for, like and you've already said it, how open you are and happy to chat and reveal all the all the secrets that are going on behind the scenes.
1: No worries, man. No worries. Thanks for having me,
0: bud. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Okay, pal. Thanks for tuning in to episode 262 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So thank you to Steve for giving up his time to come on the podcast for a third time. So even before we press record, during the recording, after the recording, it's always a pleasure to speak to Steve uh, and have a little chat and see how he's going. So also a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, fatigue science and omega wave for sponsoring this episode today the podcast could not run without these guys so if you are interested in any of their products uh, as i've outlined throughout this episode make sure you check them out really good guys and wouldn't be involved with them if they weren't so look forward to chatting to you next week um, with another couple of uh, the great guests and some great guests coming up in the weeks after that so thanks for tuning in thanks for your support and i'll speak to you next week